In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. The stock market's finished a holiday-shortened week on a positive note, and again, a positive week, although the gains soured into the close. At one point, the Dow Jones was up about 500 points, and it managed to close up just 92, uh, very close to the lows of the day. All of the indexes surrendered uh, large portions of their gains into the close. The NASDAQ, of course, made another new record high today. It's the only index that did. But the regional bank index finished in the red on the day. You know, that index was up about 4% in the morning, uh, but it surrendered all those gains. And what caused a lot of the optimism this morning was the better than expected non-farm payroll numbers that were released a day early uh, because tomorrow is closed in observance of the July 4th holiday. We actually got the non-farm payroll numbers on the same day that we got the unemployment numbers, which normally doesn't happen. Now, the markets were already positive uh, prior to getting these better than expected numbers, but when they got the numbers, uh, there was even a bigger rally. But again, the numbers are really insignificant. And I think the sell-off in the bank stocks really proves that. Because if we really had a strong economy, it's the banks that would be benefiting. Because the reason the banks are in so much trouble is because the economy is so weak, a lot of the companies and individuals that the bank loaned money to are not able to repay the loans. 
And if the economy really was as strong as everybody claims, then the banks would be going up because now it would be more likely that these bad loans might not be as bad as everybody thinks. But the reality is they're probably much worse. Let's get right into the actual non-farm payroll number that got everybody so excited. So the prior month, which was also an unexpected good number because people were expecting a big decline, and last month we were told that 2.5 million jobs were created rather than the millions that everyone expected uh, to have been destroyed. And instead, they actually went back and revised that number even higher by close to 200 thousand additional jobs, the consensus for June was for 3 million jobs being added. And we ended up adding 4.8 million. So almost 2 million more, like 60% more uh, than the markets expected. The unemployment rate, which was at 13.3% the prior month, was supposed to drop to 12.4%. Instead, it dropped all the way back down to 11.1%. Private payrolls also shot way up uh, 4.767 million versus expectations of 2.6 million. And again, we revised upward the prior month from 3,094,000 to 3,232,000. Even manufacturing payrolls revised up again from 225,000 the prior month to 250. And June, they were looking for 180,000. We got 356,000 manufacturing jobs. Labor force participation notched up from 60.8 to 61.5 versus expectation of 61.1. Average hourly earnings, though, did drop a little bit more than expected. They were looking to go down 0.8. They went down 1.2. That's probably the result of more of the lower paid workers uh, being recalled on the job. The prior month, we saw a decline of 1%. Average hourly earnings year over year was up 5%. They were looking for up 5.3 versus up 6.7 in the prior month. And the average work hours met expectations of 34.5 hours. Uh, That's a slight drop from the 34.7 hours from the prior month. But all in all, the markets thought this was a great report. Donald Trump, of course, Equally as excited about this report, he immediately had a press conference to brag about all of his job creation, about how strong the recovery is and how we're creating all these jobs, an unprecedented number of jobs. He was really bragging about these 4.8 million jobs created, the 356,000 manufacturing jobs that were created. And first of all, it is very disingenuous of President Trump to be bragging about all the jobs that were created without keeping it in its proper context. It's not like we just created these jobs. We're just restoring the jobs that we lost the months before. These aren't brand new jobs that were created. These are workers who were let go and now they're being recalled to the jobs that they already had. They're not really new jobs being created. They're old jobs being restored. So it's not like he should be taking credit for all these jobs unless he wants to accept responsibility for all the job losses, which, of course, he doesn't want to do. He wants to blame that on COVID-19, which is fine. You could do that, but then don't take credit for the jobs that you don't want to uh, accept responsibility for destroying. Don't take credit when they come back. But even more ridiculous 
about Donald Trump bragging about the job creation was the fact that he was bragging about the stock market. I mean, he was so excited about the stock market gains. He actually went off the percentage gains. Uh, He even exaggerated that because he said it was like the greatest in 30 years, uh, which it wasn't. It was closer to 20. Uh, But he was talking about this huge, unprecedented stock market gain in the second quarter. But again, lacking the proper context because we had a huge drop in the first quarter. In fact, the only index to recover what it lost in the first quarter was the NASDAQ. All the other indexes, despite the spectacular gain that they had in the second quarter, they're still down on the year. And, you know, Trump was saying that, hey, this is no accident. This is not luck that the stock market is so strong, right? Which is true. It's, it's not luck. But Trump is wrong into claiming that it's because of him. Trump is trying to convey the message that he is the reason for the big gain in the stock market. And that if we don't reelect him, the stock market's going to tank, which it probably will. But I think it's going to it could tank even if we do reelect him. But Trump wants the voters to give him credit for the stock market gain so that they'll expect more of the same if they vote to reelect him. But he's right about one thing. It wasn't luck that caused the stock market gain. But he's wrong to say it was him. The stock market gain was caused by the Fed. Not, the, not luck. We didn't get lucky. We got the Fed. And it's the Fed that got lucky because so far the dollar hasn't collapsed. But it will. And when the Fed's luck runs out, uh, then, uh, you know, it's lights out for the economy, for the market, for uh, the dollar, for Trump's presidency. All this is going to happen. I mean, to say that he's the reason that the market went up. I mean, look at the NASDAQ today, right? The NASDAQ made a new record high, led higher by stocks like Tesla. Tesla was up uh, 8.5% today. It's over $1,200 a share. Tesla, in March, it got down to like 350 was the low. It's more than tripled since the March low. Now, Donald Trump wants you to believe that Tesla's stock has tripled because of his economic policies. It's got nothing to do with it. That's not why Tesla went up. Tesla went up because the Federal Reserve. That's why it's going up. That's why everything is going up. It's the Federal Reserve. It's this reckless monetary policy from which there will be dire long-term economic consequences. That's why uh, the stock went up. You know, Tesla is the most valuable automobile company in the world now. In the world. More valuable than Toyota and all these other big companies in Germany and Japan uh, that sell way more cars than Tesla, that make way more money than Tesla, yet Tesla is more valuable than any of those companies. Is that Trump's fault? Is that just dumb luck? No, it's the Fed. The Fed is driving all this. In fact, the reason that you had these new highs in the NASDAQ is you had all these high-flying stocks. Look at DocuSign. You know, recent IPO, you know, not too long ago came public uh, back in 2018, uh, stocks at 190, up another 7% today. You know, this stock was 50 bucks uh, back in, in, in 2018. Some of the other high flyers too made new highs today, but they couldn't hold on to the gains. They closed negative, like Peloton Interactive. That stock made a new high, but then closed negative. Uh, uh, Netflix uh, closed uh, negative. It made a new high on the day, managed to close negative. Look at Amazon. Amazon was positive on the day. It surrendered uh, a large part of its gains, but it's still closed positive. You know, I, I forget the numbers, but um, 
Jeff Bezos has now earned more money on stock appreciation than he lost during his divorce, right? If you look at the his wealth, I forget the numbers, but the value of the stock that he has now is worth more than what it was after he gave his ex-wife, like, you know, $40 billion worth it. I forget how much uh, she got. Uh, but, you know, is, is this because of Donald Trump? Is Donald Trump the reason uh, that Jeff Bezos is making all this money? No. <laughs> I mean, some of it is COVID-19, but the majority of it is the Fed. All these stocks are going up because of bad monetary policy, not good economic policy or good fiscal policy. We have lousy fiscal policy. It's because the fiscal policy is so bad that the Fed is printing so much money. And because they're printing so much money and because interest rates are so low, that's why we've got this a rally in the stock market. But the real economy uh, doesn't um, support anything that Trump is claiming credit for. In fact, Trump was specifically claiming credit for the jump in manufacturing jobs. And again, he was talking this nonsense about the booming manufacturing, we're manufacturing like never before, exporting like never before. This is going to be great. It's going to be fabulous, right? It's a brand new day. It's a renaissance in manufacturing. Because remember, that was what he campaigned on, revitalizing American manufacturing, ending the trade deficit. Well, Donald Trump didn't pay any attention to the newest trade data, right? That number came out at the same time that we got the jobs numbers. Of course, nobody paid any attention to that number other than me. The trade deficit for the month of May, right? This is May's deficit. They're a month behind. Uh, was supposed to come in at $53 billion, which would have been a larger deficit than the $49.4 billion that we had in the prior month. And they revised that up a little bit to $49.8 billion. Not much of a revision, but a little bit. But the, the current month, or May, we ended up with a wider-than-expected $54.6 billion uh, on the month. So basically, month over month, we had a 9.7% increase in the trade deficit. That is a huge jump. And the reason for that jump was mainly due to a 4.4% drop in exports, which is a big number. In fact, the $144.5 billion figure for exports for the month, that was the lowest amount of exports since November of 2009. But if you just look at goods, right, not services, but just goods, which has to do with manufacturing, which Trump is bragging about, there we saw an even bigger drop. It was a 5.8% decline in manufacturing. The amount of manufacturing exports, goods exports, is now at the lowest level since August of 2009. So total exports, the lowest since November of 2009, uh, and goods exports, the lowest since August of 2009. What was going on in 2009? We were just ending the Great Recession. And so that's the last time manufacturing exports were this week. So how are you talking about this revitalization of manufacturing, this boom in manufacturing, when we're at the lowest level uh, since the Great Recession ended in, in 2009? And it also causes you to you know, look uh, you know, cross-eyed at some of these numbers. I mean, if we brought all these workers back to the job in manufacturing, Where's all the stuff that they manufactured and, and why don't we see it in the exports? Now, maybe we'll see it next month. I don't know. We'll see. 
uh, but uh, something might not jive. In fact, I think a lot of people should be taking these jobs numbers with a grain of salt because we saw such huge revisions to prior months. How do we even know that these jobs that the government is claiming were created were in fact created or rather restored? In fact, if you look at the um, the actual numbers of unemployment, the weekly unemployment claims, we got another 1.427 million of new unemployment claims filed on the week. You know, and that's more than was expected. It's less than the prior week, which was 1,482,000. So a little bit of an improvement, but still, you know, a lot of new layoffs. I mean, if things are so good, why are we still laying off so many people? Why are so many new people getting pink slips if the economy is rebounding as strong as uh, everybody seems to think, including the president? In fact, we did get a rebound in manufacturing orders in May, but not as big as they thought. And in fact, we revised down the April number from minus 13 to minus 13.5. Uh, they were looking for up 8.7%. Instead, we got up 8%. And while everybody is, you know, celebrating the strength of the rebound, everybody is ignoring the fact that the relapse has already started. I mean, look at all of these states that had reopened already announcing that they're closing stuff down. Look what's happening in California. Look at Nevada. You know, I was supposed to go to Freedom Fest. I had mentioned on this podcast that I was going to be uh, at Freedom Fest. They canceled Freedom Fest, right? They, they, they made the announcement on their website yesterday that the event was canceled because now uh, the governor reinstituted the ban on larger gatherings of which uh, Freedom Fest uh, was part. And so the hotel had to cancel the thing. And so now the whole thing is off. So that's a lot of economic activity that's not going to take place. You know, I canceled the hotel room that I had reserved at Caesars Palace. Obviously, a lot of other people are doing that. So that's income that's not going to be generated. People are canceling their flights. You know, I went and I canceled my flight and I was under the false impression that there wouldn't be a penalty. Because when I was on the Internet, I looked at, you know, United's cancellation policy. That's who I booked the flight on. And it said that they have uh, you can make changes and, and have cancellations without any penalties. And so I thought no penalties meant no penalties. I guess I didn't bother to read the fine print, which is what I should have done, because when I called up to cancel my reservation, they said, fine, you can cancel that. There's no penalty. Uh, and I said, okay, uh, you, you know, how do I get my refund or something? So, well, there is no refund. You, don't, you can't get any of your money back. And I went, what do you mean? And they said, well, you can cancel it without a penalty, uh, but you don't get your money back. And I said, well, if I don't get my money back, isn't that a penalty, right? The, the, the lack of getting my money back, to me, sounds like I'm getting some kind of penalty. And they said, well, the, the idea is that we're not going to charge you something for canceling. You'll have a credit uh, that you can spend on United for the next two years. So uh, in that respect, there's no penalty as long as I you know, fly United uh, and, and, and cover the cost of the two tickets that I bought, you know, two uh, business class tickets for myself and my son. And, I, you know, other airlines don't do that. You know, there are other airlines that actually give you back your money. So you got to really check the fine print. United isn't doing that. Uh, but I might use the money. We'll see, because I still want to do the Joe Rogan podcast, but I may not do it on the date that I was initially going to do it, because I was going to do the Joe Rogan podcast on the 14th, because I was going to go there from Vegas. But since I'm not going to be in Vegas, and I'm just maybe going to go out to California 
pretty much specifically to do the Rogan podcast, then obviously I have a lot more flexibility. And so I may want to push it back a little because there's now like a three week lockdown over there. And in fact, Connecticut says if you travel there and you come back, I need to quarantine myself for two weeks. So I may want to wait uh, and push back the Joe Rogan appearance for maybe a week or two. Maybe some of this stuff will blow over. I don't know. But the bottom line is the markets and investors are ignoring the fact that the relapse is already starting. So how can they be talking about this V-shaped recovery when the second line of the V is already turned down? And I also retweeted a tweet that I read earlier uh, on the day from this guy, uh, Jed Colco, who sent out a graph of uh, U5 minus temporary unemployment. He looked at the core unemployment in June, which is uh, the unemployment numbers that don't include the temporary people who were temporarily laid off and then brought back. And that continues to rise. You know, that's been rising steadily uh, ever since March. So the core number of unemployed keeps going up. People want to overlook that. You know, one of the one statistics, though, again, that got a lot of airtime today, a lot of discussion, was the fact that black unemployment continues to be higher than white unemployment. And of course, this is nothing new, right? If you, the, the, the earliest that the government really has official statistics uh, goes, I think, 1954 or something like that is when it started. But ever since then, ever since the mid-50s, the black unemployment rate was higher than the white unemployment rate. Ironically, I think the gap between black and white unemployment is actually the lowest now that it's been, I think, over the entire time, uh, which is very interesting that everybody wants to ignore that. Uh, but the fact is, black unemployment is higher than than white unemployment, particularly when it comes to teenagers. There you have an even wider gap between black teenagers and white teenagers. But I've pointed out, you go back 100 years, and these aren't official government statistics, but these are the statistics that we have. But 100 years ago, black teenage unemployment was actually lower than white teenage unemployment. And the main reason I like to bring that up is because this disparity is continuing to be blamed on racism. There was a guy on CNBC today. He was a, a black mayor. I don't remember his name or what city he was the mayor of, but he was being interviewed because I caught the end of the interview, so I didn't see the introduction. But he basically said that this disparity, the fact that black unemployment is currently higher than white unemployment is all the proof that you need that we have systemic racism in the United States, that you can make that conclusion simply by looking at these results, these numbers, that the results are, are somehow uh, able to prove that the only reason that these results could have happened is racism, which, of course, is bad logic. It, it, is, it, it is false logic to somehow deduce that the consequence somehow in and of itself can tell you why it happened, which it can't. The fact that black unemployment is higher than white unemployment in and of itself doesn't tell you anything. You have to actually look at the evidence to try to find out why that's the case. You just can't assume uh, that it's racism. You have to have some proof because the fact that the numbers are what they are in and of itself doesn't prove anything. And in fact, the racism explanation is the one that makes the least sense, especially, again, if you go back 100 years ago and you find that black teenage unemployment was lower than white teenage unemployment, 
obviously racism wasn't less. We didn't have less racism 100 years ago than we have today. We had more racism 100 years ago than we have today. Yet the problem has gotten worse, not better. But yes, there are real causes for black unemployment being higher. And I've gone over them on this podcast many times, so I don't have to go over it again, but you got the minimum wage laws, you got occupational licensing laws, you got the failed public schools, you got uh, the anti-discrimination laws. There's all sorts of things that government does, all sorts of barriers to employment uh, that are more responsible for this gap, right? You just can't say it's, it's racism. But when this guy said that, Right? That it, this proves that there's systemic racism. The host didn't say anything, didn't challenge him. Everybody just accepts the fact that racism is responsible for this and any other problem uh, that black America has. Right? And the reason that this is happening is because if it is racism, well, now the government has to do something about it. And this guy, this mayor, said that because black unemployment solely results from racism, then the government needs to do something about this. And again, the, the guy agrees. I mean, they're even talking about the Federal Reserve, right, needs to do something, right? And I think Neil Kashgari came out and said, yes, the Fed is going to do something about the black unemployment problem. What? What? I mean, they can't even create employment for everybody, let alone like laser focus it just to African-Americans. I mean, how does printing money help one group of people rather than the other group? I mean, it can help you based on if you own assets, you know, and so I guess blacks with assets are benefiting, but how are they going to just benefit African-Americans and not benefit everybody else with some specific monetary policy? The whole thing is nonsense. A perfect and rather ridiculous example of why you just can't jump to the conclusion that racism is the cause simply if you look at the outcome is a report that just happened last night, I think, on ABC News in which they basically declared that America's national parks provide yet more proof of systemic racism in the United States. And the proof is that not enough blacks visit the parks, that the vast majority of people visiting the national parks are white and not enough blacks. Maybe it was something like 5%. I forget what it was of the visitors are black, even though they're maybe 13% of the population. And even a small percentage of blacks work at the national parks relative to their you know, percentage of the population. And therefore, this is absolute evidence of racism. Because after all, why aren't there more African-Americans visiting the national parks? It must be because of racism, because any kind of discrepancy that we observe must be the fault of racism, even though it's clearly got nothing to do with racism. The national parks are not segregated. They don't have signs on there, you know, no blacks allowed. Anybody who wants to visit the national parks can visit them. I mean, did it not occur to ABC that maybe the reason that there's not that many African-Americans visiting the national parks is because they don't want to go there? Maybe it's just not their idea of a fun vacation? I mean, first of all, where are the national parks? They're in rural areas, right? They're in places like Wyoming and Montana. Not a lot of African-Americans living in Wyoming and Montana. I'm not even sure if they're 1% of the population. And if they are, maybe it's barely 1%, right? So 
you're not going to see as many blacks at Yellowstone if they have to travel such a far distance to get there. Yes, blacks may be 13% of the overall population, but they're concentrated in these rural areas. So they would have to travel great distances to get to the national parks. Maybe they're not interested in doing it. And of course, you know, you do have a lot of African-Americans in cities, urban areas. Maybe they don't even have cars. Maybe they generally uh, use public transportation. Well, you know, you can't do that to get to Wyoming or Montana. You usually got to fly in a plane or you got to drive cross country in an RV. And, you know, maybe they don't have these things. But the fact that they have no desire uh, to visit these parks or they don't live close enough to the parks to make visiting them convenient, that doesn't mean that the parks are racist. And they're somehow, ABC was saying, it's some kind of national emergency. And they're interviewing all these people about what, how the terrible this is and, and how the national parks have to do something to make sure that more African-Americans visit the parks. Why? If they want to visit them, they'll visit them. What difference does it make? Whoever wants to visit the park can visit the park. And, you know, the reason that not as many African-Americans work at the parks is obviously proximity. In order to work in Yellowstone Park, you got to live in Wyoming. And if only 1% of the people in Wyoming are black, why would you expect to have 13% of the employees being black? I mean, the whole thing is absurd to just assume every time you see a discrepancy that is the result of racism, and that every discrepancy needs to be fixed by the government, that it's some type of national crisis. I mean, a lot of white people don't go to national parks either. I mean, it's a very small percentage of the white population that visits these parks. Who cares? You know, I ski, or at least I used to ski quite a bit. I haven't been skiing that much recently. But, you know, when I go skiing, I don't see that many black people on the slopes. I mean, I see a few but certainly not 13% of the skiers. I mean, not even close. In fact, I'm not even sure I've ever seen a black snowboarder. I don't know. But I mean, so does that mean that uh, skiing is racist? I mean, do we have to do something? Do we have to make a special effort to get more blacks on the ski slopes? Well, why? if they want to ski, what's stopping them? Now, again, they live a little further away from the ski areas. So maybe that's why they don't go. I mean, it is kind of an expensive sport you know, uh, to do. The lift tickets are kind of expensive, so that prices out a lot of lower income people, which might disproportionately impact blacks. But who cares, right? I mean, is anybody claiming uh, that there are certain things where there's not enough white people? There's too many black people uh, doing something and therefore we need more whites? Look, how about some freedom? How about just respecting the choices that people make and leave it at that? And again, just don't jump to a conclusion. It's the same thing uh, with the unemployment rate. Just because more blacks are unemployed, they have a higher unemployment rate than whites, it doesn't mean that it results from racism any more than the fact that not enough blacks choose to visit the national parks. These choices have nothing to do with racism and everything to do with their freedom. But again, the main reason that the establishment, the left-wing establishment, the Black Lives Matter crowd, the reason that they want African-Americans to believe that racism is the cause of their problems is so that they'll look to government for solutions, right? Because it, 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 you know, you're telling African-Americans, you've got no chance. You can't succeed. It's impossible. The deck is stacked against you because of racism. 
right? And so therefore, you can't help yourself. You need the government to help you, right? So that's how they get support of the African-American voters by telling them that you can't succeed without our help because otherwise you can't overcome the barrier of racism. And then when you get white Americans to concede that racism is the problem, because if they don't concede that, then they themselves are racist. Well, now they have no choice but to support these government programs to supposedly right that wrong. But of course, since the wrong doesn't exist, the problems are just going to get worse, right? Just handing out money to African-Americans is not going to level the playing field. It's not going to close this gap. If you're going to ignore the real cause of this and other disparities, right, then you're never going to solve a problem that you don't even understand, right? You're simply going to make the problem worse. Uh, As usual, too, when we got those better than expected jobs numbers, we did get a sell-off in the price of gold pre-market. Gold sold off just as the stock market went up. But it didn't take long for gold to uh, recover uh, those losses and move into positive territory. In fact, we had a nice rally in the gold stocks. The GDXJ actually made a new high for the year today. It got up to 50.64. But just like the overall stock market, it surrendered those gains. It ended up closing in negative territory, uh, down about 0.67%. Same thing with the GDX, which didn't make a new high on the day. Uh, it was higher and it ended up closing uh, down by about a percent. Gold itself uh, edged higher on the day. So it wasn't, uh, you know, it didn't go into negative territory. In fact, it never really had that bigger rally. I think the most I saw it up might have been six or seven, eight bucks, something like that. It closed up about four dollars around 1774. But if you look at that gold chart, you know, this is what they talk about when they talk about a coiled spring, right? Where, you know, people will say that a stock looks like a coiled spring, meaning it looks like it's really compressed and getting ready to break out. Look how narrow that trading range is for gold, right? And it's a very narrow range right at the highs for the year. And so what that is telling you is that there is resistance at the highs, but there's a lot of support and the support keeps rising higher and higher and higher to meet that resistance. And so the trading range is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as the bidders are raising their bids right, to meet that supply. But as the bidders are coming up, the supply is being exhausted. And so it's like a coiled spring and the market is primed for a huge move up because as soon as we exhaust the remaining sellers that have been overhanging the market and right, the buyers are coming up to meet the sellers. The sellers are not going down to meet the buyers, right? So it is a seller's market and that the buyers are taking the offers from the sellers. But when the sellers run out of stock to sell, the buyers are going to keep buying. And then without any sellers, that's when the price is going to explode. Uh, that's when the gold, uh, the stock price is going to take off. So this is just an opportunity. While the supply of sellers is still there, buy what they're selling before they run out. Right? So keep buying gold. You know, Call up shift gold. Get some gold. Get some silver. Silver has the same kind of pattern as gold. It looks just as much like a coiled spring uh, as gold. And I think once silver breaks out, it will do so with a vengeance. Uh, so buy some silver as well as gold. And yeah, the gold stocks, I think this is going to be the big, big gain. You know, again, Trump was bragging about how great stocks did during the second quarter. But what he didn't say was the stocks that did the best were the gold stocks. 
So you know that the market isn't rising because we have a great economy when it's the gold stocks that are leading the way, right? The fact that the gold stocks were the strongest group shows you it's inflation, not economic growth, that's driving the stock market because the stocks that benefit most from inflation are gold stocks. And in fact, I think right now gold stocks are a great hedge for your own business, right? If business is slow because of the weak economy, because of COVID, I think if you have a nice portfolio of gold stocks, the worse your business gets, the more money you're going to make on your gold stocks. And, and if somehow, you know, the economy really picks up and I'm wrong and things get a lot better, well, maybe the gold stocks will go down, but okay, because now you're going to make more money at your business. But if your business is weak and you're not generating a lot of money, it's good to have something that could do well when everything else is, is doing bad. And the reason that a weak economy is even better for gold than a strong one is because the weaker the economy gets, the more money the Federal Reserve prints to try to prop it up, the bigger the deficits become. They're already talking now, again, about another wave of stimulus, a $1.5, $2 trillion stimulus coming down the pike, and all that's going to have to be printed. I mean, look at the national debt now. We're already at about $26.5 trillion dollars. It's about 132% of GDP. But, you know, when you throw in the state and local government spending, total U.S. government debt is now 149% of GDP, right? We're almost almost 50%. The government at all levels is almost spending half of the GDP. That's amazing. $9.5 trillion of government spending. And of course, the lion's share of the federal government spending is being financed by the printing press. And of course, pretty soon, the state and local government spending is going to be financed by a printing press too, because the Fed is buying up municipal bonds. I mean, and corporate spending too, right? Because they're buying up uh, corporate bonds. Everybody's spending is being paid for by the Federal Reserve printing money. And that's going to be the source of this new economic stimulus. It's all printing money. And so this is the most positive environment that you can imagine for gold. I mean, one of these days, gold is going to stop selling off on good economic news when people realize that the only reason it's good, right, is because of the money printing. It only looks good. It's an illusion, but the illusion is created by inflation. And the more inflation the Federal Reserve creates to make a bad economy look good, the higher the price of gold is going to get. But I agree when the data is bad, that's even more bullish for gold because that means they print even more money than when the data looks good. But it really doesn't matter. Whatever the data is, gold's got to go up. If the data is good, it's only because the Fed is printing money. If the data is bad, it just means the Fed's going to print even more money. So money's going to be getting printed. That's it. And of course, way more money is going to be printed in a Biden administration than in a Trump administration. I mean, as bad as it is under Trump, it's going to be much worse under Biden. And again, the odds, look at the polling numbers now at predicted.com. Basically, if you bet that Donald Trump is going to win and he wins, you triple your money. Triple your money. <laughs> this is, there's a 30-point gap. Again, every time I look at it, the president's odds go down. This is the lowest I've seen. And also, it's the highest I've seen it right now that the odds that the Democrats take the United States Senate. So we're looking in November, which is not that many months away, a, 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 a clean sweep where the Democrats have control of the White House and Congress and de facto the printing press. 
right? And they're going to use it in overdrive, right? If you think we're using it now, they're going to use it more for all this stuff because, you know, yes, people are trying to sell Joe Biden as a moderate, but he's just going to be a puppet pulling the strings. It's going to be AOC, Break the Bernie Sanders, the far left Black Lives Matter is going to be controlling this guy, right? So they're just going to print because we've already established the precedent that deficits don't matter and we can print as much money as we want. And so if we can print money to bail out Wall Street and to bail out big corporations and to bail out the rich, why can't we bail out uh, the average guy? Why can't we bail out students who have too much debt? Why can't we bail out African-Americans who were suffering from hundreds of years of systemic racism, right? Just print the money, right? Make everybody uh, whole. So this is all coming. So gold's going up, but before he does, uh, just buy it. And the gold stocks, you know, set up a separately managed account with me. Adrian Day is managing the separately managed accounts or buy our mutual fund, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund. Uh, You can buy it again, as I said, Schwab, Fidelity, E-Trade. You can set up an account with us. You can even go directly to our website at europacificfunds.com. If you're just a small investor with a few thousand dollars to invest, you know, just go right to the website, europacificfunds.com, read a prospectus, download it, you know, and just buy the fund right there online. You don't need to talk to a broker or set up a brokerage account. Just buy the fund because this is the uh, calm before a coming storm. At some point, I think the price is just going to go ballistic. And, you know, it's much better to buy before that happens than after. Of course, you know, no guarantees. I could be wrong. I don't think I am. I mean, everything I know about economics tells me that I'm right. Right. And yeah, you know, I've been saying stuff like this for a long time. And the price of gold has been going up. I mean, people want to give me shit about that. But the gold price is almost 1800 I've been recommending it since it was below 300. It's done really, really well. Yes, we went through a four or five year period where we had a, a bear market from 2011 to two, end of 2015, where gold went from 1900 to just over 1,000. All right. And then we've had a slow uh, bull market that has been growing up until now. I think once we take out the 2011 high, we're going to go ballistic. But as far as I'm concerned, I've never been more bullish on gold and silver as I am now. Yes, I was bullish about it in the past, but the economy was never as screwed up in the past as it is in the present. And it's only going to get more screwed up in the future, right? Every single problem that I have been talking about and warning about for over a decade is so much bigger now than it ever was. So as bullish as I was back then, I'm even more bullish now. And just because we were able to kick the can down the road, and prevent a complete dollar collapse and you know gold going through the roof in the past doesn't mean we can continue to press that luck now, given how much worse the situation is. We were able to get away with trillion dollar deficits, but does that mean we can get away with $4 trillion deficits or $6 trillion deficits? No, but everybody has been lulled into this false sense of security to think that because we did it before, we can do it again, and there's no limit to how big the deficit's gonna be. There's no limit to how much money the world will loan us, right? To how long the dollar can maintain the reserve currency status, no matter how much we debase it. Well, we're about to find out that there is a limit, right? Nothing that can't go on forever will, and this can't go on forever, and because it's now so big, it's about to end. And I wanna wrap up uh, today's podcast by acknowledging 
the 4th of July holiday, which we're going to have on Saturday. And the markets are, again, as I said earlier, closed tomorrow so that people still have a day off of work uh, because, you know, the holiday falls on a Saturday. And so they don't want to rip people off of a vacation or a three day weekend. And so uh, the stock market and probably a lot of other businesses are going to be closed on on Friday. But this is a, you know, very, I guess, sobering time really to be celebrating uh, July 4th, Independence Day. In fact, there's a lot of Americans out there that don't even think we should celebrate at all, right? They don't even think uh, the 4th of July should even be a holiday. And, you know, I've talked a lot about the 4th of July and the mixed emotions that I have about really what is, you know, should be the greatest American holiday and uh, should be the one that we uh, celebrate the most. And, you know, I really love the holiday and, and what it symbolizes and the fact that it's a uniquely American holiday, right? I mean, a lot of other countries have similar holidays to commemorate uh, the births of their nations or things like that. But, you know, it's unique. It's an American holiday, right? Kind of like Thanksgiving is an American holiday, which is one of the reasons I like it. I mean, because there are some holidays, religious holidays that are celebrated all over the world. So there's nothing unique about Americans celebrating, you know, the, the, the Christian holidays or even the Jewish holidays. Uh, but the uniquely American holidays is when we can come together as a people and celebrate what it means to be an American and the American heritage. But that is what's really under attack right now. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, have been looking forward. I've noticed some of the comments, you know, people, you know, are looking forward to a 4th of July podcast because I've done some really, really good ones in the past. Um, in particular, uh, number 368, uh, Dependence Day is nothing to celebrate. Podcast number uh, 264, Dependence Day, Americans celebrate free stuff. And number 265, which I followed up the next day, which a lot of people really like what it means to be an American. And that one is entire podcast really on uh, on uh, Independence Day and, and, and you know what it means to be an American. In fact, somebody just sent me, they, they took maybe 14 minutes of that podcast. I think it's maybe close to an hour podcast that they took 14 minutes of it or 15 minutes and they, they pieced it together and they, and they added a lot of illustrations and they're releasing it as a standalone podcast. And I watched it and it's really good. And so we'll probably uh, link to it or uh, maybe I'll, if the guy wants, I'll copy it and, and put it out on, on my YouTube channel. But it, it, you should definitely watch that, but then you should also listen to the entire thing because, you know, a lot of good stuff got edited out because he wanted to make a shorter video. But there's a lot of really good stuff that got edited out. But, you know, rather than repeat uh, what I already said in my prior two Independence Day podcasts, I would just encourage people to listen to what I already said. In fact, what I'm going to do to make it a lot easier, because a couple of those podcasts, the Fourth of July stuff, the American Independence Day stuff, is only part of the podcast. I have a lot of other topics that I cover. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out uh, just the stuff on 4th of July and Independence Day and why it's unique. I'm going to pull out the what it means to be American stuff, and I'm going to come out with a brand new 4th of July podcast that I will release on Saturday on the 4th of July. And so that will give you a chance to just listen to the actual podcast in one in one form rather than having to piece through uh, some of the ones that I did in, in the past. But I do want to add a little bit of discussion today that's kind of unique, given what's really happening now with the Black Lives Matter and all the pressure now uh, to kind of downplay 
uh, the 4th of July, which is going to happen anyway, because, you know, there's a lot of towns where they're not going to have the fireworks displays because of COVID-19. But really what's happened, there seems to be a little bit of a movement that's growing to kind of not really celebrate uh, Independence Day on July 4th, but June 19th, right, which is Juneteenth. And I don't think I really talked about uh, the Juneteenth holiday on this podcast. Uh, and most of you now have probably heard of it by now, because uh, nobody ever talked about Juneteenth. I mean, I, personally, I had actually never heard that expression until this year. I'm not sure how many people knew about it. Uh, not that it's an insignificant day. I mean, now you know that I'm familiar with it, I, I, I don't want to downplay the insignificance of what happened uh, on, on June 19th in uh, 1865. But what happened is on June 19th, that is the day that a lot of African-Americans who were enslaved in the Confederacy, that's when they found out that they had actually been freed. But they had actually been freed years earlier. President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation back in September 22nd of 1862, although it didn't, I think, become effective until January of 1863. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but the Emancipation Proclamation didn't really free all the slaves. It only freed the slaves that were enslaved in the states that were part of the rebellion, right? The states that were in the Confederacy and that were at war with the United States, because there were four Southern states that never joined the Confederacy, that remained loyal to the Union, yet they still had slaves. And the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to those states. So Lincoln wasn't actually freeing all the slaves. He was just freeing the slaves that he really had no control over because they were in the states that were in rebellion. So it was more at that time of a war strategy, right, than it was uh, freeing slaves because if he was going to free the slaves, he would have freed all the slaves, including the slaves uh, that were living in the states that were still loyal to the Union. Now, those slaves eventually got freed, right? But what really emancipated the slaves was the 13th Amendment. And that amendment didn't get ratified by all the states until December 6th of 1865. So that's really the Emancipation Day. And I appreciate the significance of June 19th as the day when uh, slaves who had been held in Texas were first informed that they had been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. They didn't realize it. And so that was like a big deal, obviously, when you find out that you're now free uh, and you used to be a slave. So this is a very, very important day, not only in uh, African-American history, but in American history. I mean, slavery was a horrible uh, institution, and the fact that it ended is a good thing. I mean, it's especially good for the slaves, but it's good for the entire society uh, to not have slavery. And I do think that um, June 19th should be a day that we celebrate I am against making it a national holiday. I don't think we need any more national holidays. I mean, that doesn't mean that people can't celebrate it, but it doesn't mean that it needs to be a national holiday. And the same thing with the ratification of the 13th Amendment. We can celebrate that too, you know, but that doesn't have to be a national holiday. But what I think the impetus may be would be to actually celebrate June 19th instead of July 4th, because the idea would be we shouldn't celebrate July 4th, because that isn't about freedom and independence, because we still had slaves. 
And we didn't truly become free until the slaves were free as well, until all Americans were free. So rather than celebrate a holiday that only applies to white Americans, we need to celebrate a holiday that applies to all Americans. And that might be uh, June 19th, right? Juneteenth. But while I think that that is a significant day in history, I do not think it is as significant as the 4th of July, as the founding of the American Republic. Because all of the people who are alive today and who live in the United States should want to celebrate the birth of the nation. Even if at the time it was born, their ancestors may have been enslaved, it was still a fantastic uh, uh, achievement and accomplishment to embark on this experiment, this nation conceived in liberty and individual freedom and limited government. And yes, even though it did not apply to everybody initially because of slavery, it has applied to everybody since 1865, and we still should celebrate the birth of that nation that we all call home. We're all Americans regardless of whether or not our ancestors were once slaves in America, we're all Americans now, and we should all celebrate the birth of the nation from which we are all citizens. Yes, we can commemorate milestones in American history. There are a lot of different milestones. Freeing the slaves was certainly one of them. But you cannot condemn America. I mean, that's why you have a lot of people now, you know, they want to tear down statues of Thomas Jefferson, of of George Washington, right? Because, oh, no, these are bad men because they either had slaves or condoned slavery or believed in slavery. But you have to keep everything in perspective that America did not invent slavery. Slavery was around for thousands of years before America became America. There were slaves. I mean, slavery didn't really start to end in a broad scale, really, until the 19th century. And America was formed in the latter part of the 18th century. Yes, there were some countries that had managed to eliminate it uh, even before then, but most of it was happening uh, in, in the 19th century, including in America itself. I mean, we eliminated slavery in 1865, uh, but it got eliminated, right? But the fact that we had slavery at the time, that doesn't diminish the greatness of America because you can't judge modern America based on the existence of slavery, based on its formation. If that's the case, then pretty much every nation has to just ignore all of its history, right, that took place while there was slavery. (laughs) Because again, there's been slavery for thousands of years, and everybody has that blight pretty much in their history. And of course, you don't want to forget that slavery existed. You want to remember that slavery existed, because that's the best way to make sure that it doesn't happen again, is to acknowledge that it happened before, and why it was wrong, and, and, and the struggle in America that it took to end it. Now, personally, I believe that it would have gone away anyway, even if we hadn't fought the Civil War, maybe it would have taken another 20 or 30 years, but it would have gone away, just like it went away in every other country. Uh, but that's a topic for another podcast, and I really don't want to even get into that. But my point now is that I know there's going to be a movement to somehow try to diminish the significance of Independence Day and try to replace it uh, with this uh, June 19th. And I do believe that it is going to become a national holiday. I do think uh, that in a Biden administration, that is going to be another 
piece of legislation that they're going to pass. Uh, they're going to make uh, that day a, another paid federal holiday so that a lot of government workers uh, get the day off with pay and then the markets will be closed and the bank is going to be closed. But simply recognizing that day as a national holiday is going to do nothing about solving the underlying problems. Just like making Martin Luther King Day a national holiday uh, didn't solve any of these problems, right? I mean, because there was a lot of pressure on, on, on having a, a holiday after Martin Luther King, who, by the way, he is the only American that we celebrate with a national holiday. I mean, President's Day used to be Washington's birthday, but we don't call it Washington's birthday anymore. We, we call it President's Day, which I don't like. I'd rather it be called Washington's birthday because I want to honor the founder of our country. I want to honor George Washington. I don't want to honor every president that succeeded him. We've had a lot of lousy presidents that I, I don't want to commemorate with a holiday. I want to distinguish um, George Washington. He was a fantastic man, a great man who could have been king. They wanted to make George Washington king of America. He turned that down. How many people would turn down being a king? You know, And he's the guy that set the precedent. After two terms in office, he stepped down. There was no term limit. That didn't come until FDR, a Democrat, stayed in for four terms. But the first president of the United States, he would have had a third term if he wanted it. Nobody would run against George Washington. But he said, hey, I've been in president long enough. I'm, I'm, I'm stepping down. Let somebody else do it. He was a great man, an honorable man, and he should have a holiday, but he doesn't. The only person that has a holiday in America is uh, Martin Luther King, a black man, right? How racist are we if our only national holiday is to honor the, mer- the memory of a black man? But also, you know, we're going to do all this stuff now in the name of stamping out racism. But remember, we did the same thing. In the 1960s, we went through this charade with Lyndon Johnson and the war on poverty, right? We already tried to do this. We had a war on poverty and poverty won. That is the problem. All of the problems that existed in the 1960s that sparked all kinds of riots. We had big riots back then too, riots at the Democratic National Convention. And we ended up with this great society and all these welfare programs. And everything the government did as part of the great society to help the poor, right? And a lot of the poor that they were trying to help were African-Americans, right? And all this stuff backfired. Everything made the situation worse, right? All the problems that they tried to solve, they made much, much worse. And so now, instead of recognizing that government policy created these problems, now they just want to blame it on racism. They want to pretend that we're even more racist now than we were in the 1960s, which is completely preposterous to believe that that's the case. I mean, there used to be a lot of racism in this country in the 1950s and 1960s. There was a lot of anti-Semitism too, right? But we don't have nearly as much today. We've made tremendous progress. One of the only areas where America has made progress, right, is in uh, diminishment of racism. I mean, we've gone backwards everyplace else. I mean, we've lost a lot of freedom. We lost a lot of rights. The government's got a lot bigger, right? We have much less economic growth. So pretty much everything uh, has gone wrong in America, except for the reduction in racism. People are far more tolerant today than they were in the past. And that is a good thing. But everybody wants to ignore that. Everybody wants to pretend that we're actually more racist now than we were back then because the problems have gotten so much worse. But the problems are worse not because of more racism, but because of more government. 
And so everything that we're about to do, right, in the name of solving these problems that supposedly result from racism is simply going to make problems that have nothing to do with racism much, much worse. Also, during that time period, we got the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which, you know, a lot of people in the Democratic Party have amnesia about that act because, you know, they know that President Lyndon Johnson is the guy who signed it, but he only got it passed because of Republicans. It was the Democrats down south that led the opposition that really were the strongest ones to try to filibuster and kill the bill. So it was only because of the Republicans uh, that that Civil Rights Act got passed. And of course, uh, it was a mixed result because there was part of it that ended all the institutionalized discrimination, you know, known as the Jim Crow laws. And that was a good thing that had nothing but positive results. Uh, There should be no legal discrimination in government entities. So no federal, state, local government should be discriminating for any reason based on, you know, race. They should be treating everybody the same. I think the problem with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and why some Republicans, let's say like Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan, were opposed to it at the time was because they didn't like the part that applied to private conduct, where it was now illegal for private individuals to discriminate based on race. And that's where you have a problem, because where government does not have the right to do that, private citizens do, right? You may not like discrimination or, you know, I don't like it when it comes when it's on the basis of race. I mean, certainly there are reasons to discriminate that there's nothing against. I mean, obviously, all employers discriminate based on ability, right? You know, you're hiring somebody who's better for the job. So you're discriminating against, you know, less uh, qualified applicants. But yes, I mean, we don't like the fact that people want to discriminate based on irrelevant factors like race. But as I said on this podcast, just because we don't like something doesn't mean that other people don't have the right to do it. You see, when government discriminates, you don't have the free market checks and balances. So you need a law to make sure if you've got some government entity and they're, let's say, discriminating and they're only hiring uh, whites and they're passing up better qualified blacks, there is no corrective mechanism because they're not a business. They're not subject to competition. There's no profit and loss. There is no punishment when the government discriminates. And of course, since everybody is taxed, everybody needs to be treated equally by the government. As I've explained in other podcasts, when it comes to the free market, there is a check against racism, against people who are making hiring decisions based on race rather than ability, right? And that is a loss of profits. You pass up on hiring the best candidate and therefore it costs you money. You lose money by being a racist and your competitor then has an advantage against you because he is hiring based on ability and you're hiring based on race. So he outcompetes you. He can offer uh, a better quality service or better price goods. And so free market capitalism drives out the racist. It imposes a cost to discriminate. There is no such cost when it comes to government. Government bureaucrats aren't punished if government is less efficient. Government is always inefficient, so it doesn't matter. So that's why you need laws to prevent discrimination in government, but you don't need those laws 
for the private sector because capitalism will prevent that from happening. It's so ironic that while capitalism would prevent discrimination based on race, government intervention to supposedly prevent it from happening is the reason it's actually happening more. And I did an entire podcast on that. Uh, Just go and and listen to it. In fact, I, I actually took part of the podcast and just reissued it just on on that topic. It's called Capitalism Punishes Discrimination, Government Rewards It. So it's a 48-minute segment that was taken from a larger podcast. So uh, if you haven't listened to it already, just go listen to that one. Uh, Capitalism Punishes Discrimination, Government Rewards It. So there is no place for any discrimination in any government entity. And the Civil Rights Act uh, was right to abolish it. The problem was when they went outside of that and they applied it to a private, dis- private discrimination, right? And, and in fact, if it wasn't for that part, every single Republican probably uh, might have supported it. Uh, but people did have a problem with the government trying to legislate private behavior. And I've talked on this podcast many times about how that has backfired. It is precisely because we made it illegal to discriminate based on race that so many people now discriminate based on race. But that discrimination has got nothing to do with racism. They're discriminating based on race for other reasons. And the reason has to do with a fear of lawsuits. And I've talked about this, so I don't need to talk about it again, but you have lots of small employers that want to mitigate their legal liability. And there is a lot more legal liability. There's a lot more risk when you hire an African-American than if you hire a white guy. And so since there's a lot, lot less legal liability that comes with hiring a white guy, it costs less money. The white guy has an advantage over the black guy because the white guy can't sue his boss if he gets fired. And that's a big plus for the boss who doesn't want to get sued. So if I can hire somebody who can't sue me and I have another guy who can sue me eight ways from Sunday, uh, which one am I going to hire? And again, I've talked about on the podcast, it's not just about somebody suing you for wrongful termination or not promoting you. You have to worry about being sued because one of your other employees said something that was offensive. Well, there's no way a straight white guy is going to be able to sue you because somebody said something offensive to him. It's just not going to happen. The only people that might be able to make a claim that they got offended, whether it's legitimate or not, doesn't even matter. But you you have to be a member of the protected class before you have standing to file the lawsuit. And so the people who are protected from discrimination have all sorts of abilities to sue their employer for everything. And so the employer, you know, trying to mitigate that risk. I mean, there's so many other uh, risks associated with starting your own business. Who wants to add all that litigation risk on top of it? So that causes a lot of small businesses who aren't racist at all. The owners, you know, they, you know, they just want to hire the best. But sometimes the best is somebody who's white because that person can't sue you, whereas somebody who's black can. And so now you have some discrimination against African-Americans that is actually taking place, but that's not taking place because of racism. It's taking place because of the government laws that were meant to mitigate the effects of racism. But like most government laws, they actually had the opposite effect of what it was actually intended. And again, just to clarify my point here so there's no confusion, 
I am not against anti-discrimination laws in the private sector because I am in favor of discrimination based on race. It's actually because I am opposed to it. I want less discrimination based on race. I just recognize that we'll actually have more race-based discrimination if we make that illegal. Right? So I am not opposed to that portion of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because I want more race-based discrimination is precisely because I want less and because I understand the consequences of the well-intentioned law. So if you really want there to be less discrimination based on race, then you have to make it legal to discriminate based on race, and then there'll be a lot less of it. But by making it illegal and now creating a financial incentive for people to discriminate based on race, when the free market would have punished them for doing that, but now the government is rewarding them, you end up with more of what you actually want less of. You know, I watched a really good documentary a couple of days ago. My friend Larry Elder put it together. Uh, it's called Uncle Tom. Uh, in fact, I haven't even talked to Larry uh, about it. I just went and my wife and I watched it. We paid the 20 bucks, right? So not only am I not getting paid by Larry to promote his documentary, but I actually paid the $20 to watch it myself, and I think it's definitely worth it. So you should give it a look. Uh, Uncle Tom, very well-produced documentary, a lot of great African-Americans interviewed in the documentary. So check it out. You just, you know, Google uh, Uncle Tom, Larry Elder. Just go right on the website. You can, you know, pay on a credit card and watch it and encourage your friends to watch it. It's an excellent, excellent presentation. And it really destroys this whole phony narrative of systemic racism uh, that the Black Lives Matter and everybody else crowd is trying to cram down our throats. And remember, it was the welfare programs that were part of that war on poverty, in particular, aid to families with dependent children that were so instrumental in helping to destroy uh, the black household, the black family. It's the reason that so many young uh, African-Americans are growing up without a father. And this is particularly important when it comes to young boys growing up without a father. That is one of the reasons that there's a lot of crime. That's one of the reasons for a lot of these ultimate economic disparities that result. And it's not just black families that were impacted, white families too. Uh, plenty of white children grow up without fathers because their mothers are paid uh, to have children out of wedlock and they're punished uh, if the father of the children is actually living in the same house with her and, and the children. But it does disproportionately impact African-American household. So it is the welfare state and aid to families with dependent children that is partially to blame for all these problems, not racism. In fact, one of the things that Larry Elder points out in his documentary is that black children had a better chance of growing up in a household with both a mother and a father under slavery than they do today. Imagine that. Because <laughs> even though under slavery, right, the master could just tra trade away uh, the mother, the father, the kids. Yet, despite slavery, black families managed to stay together at much higher rates than they stay together now. So as bad as slavery was, the welfare state is even worse from the perspective of its impact on the destruction of the family. Not that I'm supporting slavery. I don't. I'm just pointing out that as bad as slavery was, 
think how bad the welfare state has to be to do to black households what slavery was incapable of doing. 